here to cause chaos. Look at that! Nice. We're finally getting it. We really are. So proud of ourselves. <laughs> Ellen is still in Los Angeles with me. We took a break to go eat some lunch and then are now recording another episode. Yeah, so it's a two for one. Yeah. Not that you benefit from that, but we do. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we benefit greatly from it, so. <laughs> Also, we get to have the fun of recording actually together twice. Ooh. <laughs> and we had ice cream. I love ice cream. It was good. There was chocolate. <laughs> so that's us. And that's our updates on the last hour since we recorded the last episode. <laughs> Ellen, are you ready to learn? I'm always ready to learn. <laughs> okay. So today we're going to learn about the Egyptian pharaoh Hatshepsut. Hatshepsut? Hatshepsut. I'm so excited. <laughs> there was a saga of learning how to pronounce this name. I was gonna do this subject for the last time it was my turn, and I looked at the name, and I could not say it. I looked at the pronunciation, struggled some more, and then did Annie Oakley instead. <laughs> <laughs> but I am the ancient history nerd in this relationship, and was like, you know what? I am getting this. But yeah. I would like to put my usual disclaimer of... I can't pronounce anything in this story. It's all Egyptian and ancient. Bear with me. I asked if I could do it instead, you know, to take the burden off pronouncing it from Sam, and she just said no. Also, you're, like, worse at pronouncing it than I am. Yeah, but I also feel less shame. Yeah, but one day when we have, like, real fans and they go through our episodes, we're gonna get, like, a lot of bad comments on our pronunciations if I don't do the hard ones. Are you saying I'll get cancelled? I'm not saying you'll get canceled. I'm saying that we're going to get mean Apple podcast comments and you're going to feel sad. Oh, no. <laughs> but yes, Hatshepsut was the sixth pharaoh of the 18th dynasty of Egypt, also known as the Thutmosid dynasty. Thutmosid? Not even close. Oh, wow. <laughs> Thutmosid. There's an extra T in there. That's just unnecessary. <laughs> yeah. And so she ruled from about 1479 to 1458 BCE, so a.k.a. a long-ass time ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've really been jumping between time periods. It's because I like ancient history a lot, and you seem to like modern feminism. Yeah. Have you seen second-wave feminism? Have you seen ancient history? <laughs> they had mythologies. We don't have a freaking mythology nowadays. Monotheism really ruined the fun of religion. <laughs> Just putting it out there. It's okay. Don't you want some, like, petty gods who just mess with humans to spite each other? I mean, personally, I'd like to run away in the woods and become a witch. But can't really do that either. Okay. Well, 1479 to 1458 is a very long reign by Egyptian standards because people in this time lived to, like, 30 and that's like a 20-year reign, which is pretty long. Yeah, good for her. Um, and also her reign was known as a time of peace and prosperity and was specifically known for its arts and building projects. Most notably, she built a massive temple tomb for herself at Deir el-Bahri, a.k.a. the Valley of Kings, which is where like King Tut's tomb and everyone's was. Oh, cool. Yeah. So her rise to power was a little bit iffy. 
She became the regent queen of Egypt after her husband Thutmose II died in 1479 BCE, but she was only supposed to rule until her son, her stepson Thutmose III came of age. Mm-hmm. However, seven years after she became regent, she declared herself pharaoh. Good. <laughs> What's this snot-nosed brat gonna do? <laughs> well, at the time of like the discovery of her history... <laughs> Metropolitan Museum of Art Historian called her the vilest type of usurper because this woman's story is very much ringed by sexism. Aren't Not necessarily they all... of her time, but instead of the gentleman scholar historians who were the ones who originally unearthed information about her. Oh, this is the worst. Early 20th century Egyptologists A.K.A. like Indiana Jones style, like wearing khaki with the hats. And These whatnot. are the guys that ate all the mummies. What's with you and the eating mummies? It wasn't that big of an issue. It was so big of an issue. That's where all the mummies went. There, we have mummies still. Not enough. What more? They usually were pretty good at not eating like the pharaohs. You know what? Either I want them to not have eaten any mummies and we have all the mummies, or I want to eat a mummy. You can't eat a mummy. Exactly. That's the problem. Moving on, because I'm not touching that with a ten-foot pole. <laughs> this is how I get cancelled. Yeah. Hatshepsut insisted on being represented in art as male, so she had bulging muscles and the typical pharaonic false beard. Which, honestly, I saw the look. There's, like, a lot of pictures of it. It's kind of Chad energy. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure if they had backwards hats, she would have worn them. Yeah. However... It was believed that she wasn't really doing this because she was, like, a cross-dresser or identified as male or anything. It was more of, like, a power thing because all the inscriptions on her statues and whatnot said, like, daughter of Ra or her Mm -hmm. highness or things like that. So they always had, like, female pronouns. Gotta respect her pronouns. Yeah. So we respect her pronouns and her decision to have a lot of art made of herself male with, like, bare-chested muscles. Good. (laughs) Yeah, and during her reign, she had a primary advisor named Senemut, who a lot of older historians believed was her co-conspirator in her rapid rise to power and her lover. He had been a minor advisor under her husband and had later been appointed as the tutor to her daughter, Neferu. Um, There's no chance I'm pronouncing that any better than I just did. <laughs> but the two of them became close when he was her daughter's tutor. And he didn't really gain any, like, individual power, though, until she rose to this position of pharaoh. During her time as pharaoh, he accumulated 93 titles for himself, including the Great Steward of Amun, which is the god of Thebes. And he was also in charge of overseeing all the ambitious building projects of her era, which, and he managed to build 25 monuments to himself. Okay. Which is an absurd number for a non-royal. Yeah. Where's my 25 monuments? Yeah. So a lot of these, like, gentlemen, scholar, early 20th century Egyptologists believe that he was the real power behind her reign. However, that was just sexism. Yeah, here's my theory, is that he was tutoring her daughter and being like, girls are just as smart as boys. And then Hephetset heard that and said, all right, promotion. I mean, that's pretty much what seems to have actually happened. (laughs) In 1961, a historian named Alan Gardner said, Not even a woman of the most viral character could have attained such a pinnacle of success without masculine support. Oh, so we hate him. I do hate him. 
However, more modern historians have debunked this and have pretty much said, like, yeah, he was an important advisor to her, but there's no evidence that they were sleeping together, and there's no evidence that she, he, he, like, controlled her. Most of the modern historians believe the rumors about them being lovers are just slander, because it didn't look good for the world that a woman could seize that much power on her own. Ugh. However, he also did build himself a lavish tomb next to Hatshepsut's, but when they discovered it upon, like, all the archaeology that they've been doing in that region, his sarcophagus was unoccupied, so no one knows what happened to him. Where'd he go? Who knows? He got up and walked away. Or maybe he was never in the sarcophagus in the first place. Who knows? You ever see that movie, The Mummy? That. (laughs) Yeah, that's what happened to him. (laughs) So yeah, that's all I'm going to say about him, because he's a man, so who cares? Yeah, get out of here. Um, when Hatshepsut died in 1458 BCE, her stepson Thutmose III finally took the throne and ordered the desecration of her statues and her tomb, had her body moved from her like nice lavish tomb to like a less good one, and it was believed at the time that he hated her for usurping his power and wanted revenge. Ugh. I'm going to touch on that more later, but just so you know, he's the worst. I don't actually, I'm not, I won't call him the worst yet, but if upon my initial research, that would have been my agreement, but we're going to touch on him more later. Okay. Maybe that's what happened to the body of- Sentiment? Yeah. Maybe he was like, all right, well, mom goes in a less grand tomb because we still have to take care of that. And then he's like, well, this one's not a royal. Yeet. (laughs) Maybe. So, yeah. But her tomb itself was unearthed in... Well, it was discovered in 1902 by Howard Carter, who is the same guy who discovered, like, everything in the Valley of Kings. But it wasn't actually, like, unearthed and, like, excavated until 1927 by an archaeologist from the Met named Herbert Winlock. The monument itself had been brutally destroyed by the, like, desecration campaign but, Ugh. like, the eyes had been gouged out of her statues, the heads had been locked off of her statue of the statues of her animal companions. That's so unnecessary. Yeah, the cobra, like, symbol of a royal grave had been taken off of the tomb. Oh my god. It was, it was not cool, man. <laughs> but, other than, like, that very quick overview of, like, the timeline of her life, there's a lot more to her story that's been coming out slowly over the last, like, couple like, last century or so. Yeah, archaeology. Archaeology really, like, did a good job here. <laughs> so most of what was previously known about her was believed to be half-truths, because the archaeologists and historians who originally uncovered her story were the gentlemen scholars of the 20th century, and we don't stand them. No. Opposite of stan. <laughs> Is there an opposite of stan, Sam? Anti-stan. Anti-stan. <laughs> we anti-stan gentlemen scholars. So... Let's start at the beginning. Hatshepsut was born at the beginning of the New Kingdom, which was a very prosperous time for the Egyptian imperial powers. She was the daughter of King Thutmose I. You might have noticed that her husband's name was King Thutmose II. That was her half-brother. The Egyptians were so weird about that. They were so weird about that. (laughs) But yeah, King Thutmose I was a charismatic guy, and he was very famous for his military prowess. She was the oldest daughter of him and Queen Ahmes. She had one younger sister and two brothers, but both brothers died before her father, and therefore 
when her father died, the throne had to pass to his son by one of his secondary wives or concubines, mm-hmm. aka Thutmose II. So she should have had the throne in the first place. Yes. Because she was the eldest legitimate child. Oh, okay. Yeah. But I guess sexism wins out over lineage. Yeah. But Hatshepsut was born around the time of her father's coronation in 1504 BCE, which means that she was around for, like, all of his great deeds, which include he was the guy who sailed to Thebes with the body of a Nubian chieftain strapped to the prow of his ship as a warning sign to other nations not to cross him. Like, that was one of the most famous things he ever did. So he is terrifying. Yeah, there's so much there. Yeah. Gonna take your word. Great deed, I guess. I think it was considered impressive. Great as in terrible. Yeah. Like that one scene in Harry Potter. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, that was her main influence as a child. (laughs) And she idolized her father. She, like, loved him. When she came to power, she even had his body moved to her personal tomb so that they could be buried together when she died. Aww. Like, she was a total daddy's girl. (laughs) And she even, at one point, claimed that her father had named her the successor to the throne before he died. Historians say this is very unlikely because of the sexist nature of inheritance, especially at this time period, but she claimed it for a long time. Alright. Before her, there had been two female pharaohs, but... Both had only ruled when there was no suitable male alternative. Unlike here when there was, like, a guy of the blood, like, just hanging out. Yeah. But she was the first woman to take full power for herself as a pharaoh. Mm -hmm. This is the model that actually Cleopatra would use 14 centuries later. Hatshepsut was a big inspiration for her. Good. Yeah. But since Hatshepsut was the daughter of the pharaoh and his queen... And the next pharaoh, Thutmose II, was the son of the current pharaoh and a secondary wife. Upon her father's death, she was married to her husband, the next pharaoh, Thutmose II, to bolster his claim to the throne. However, at the time of her marriage, she was 12 years old. Ah, it's even weirder. I don't think her husband was much older, if that makes you feel better. I think he was like 15. You know what? That doesn't make me feel that much better, actually. Yeah, no, I don't think either of them got a good deal there. No. That Mr. Second was a frail and ineffectual man. Many <laughs> believe that Hatshepsut was the real power behind the throne even during his reign. But the monument she had commissioned showed her as dutiful and subservient, like one step behind him at all times. Mm-hmm. However, if you look at the legal documents at the time, it paints a much more powerful picture of her. <laughs> the two of them had a daughter, Neferer. That is... Hatshepsut's only known child, but she failed to do what the most important thing for a queen to do is, and that's produce a son. Oh, of course. <laughs> so one of Thutmose II's secondary wives had had a son, but he was still an infant when Thutmose II died, so the child was quickly named Thutmose III, and Hatshepsut was named his regent until he came of age. Okay, so like, I want to preface this with I don't condone child death, but, like, it seems like that would have been a neat solution. I mean, I don't think that there was another person who could have taken over after her. It's like, it's not like Neferer could take over things. Like, she needed this kid around for when she was done. Ah, start a matriarchy. Come on, Hefetzet. <laughs> you say it differently every time, it's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but anyway, back to my disclaimer. We do not condone the murder of children. 
<laughs> so yeah, she was only really expected to handle the affairs of government until her stepson slash nephew, gotta remember that that's the relationship here, um, came of age. And the monument she had commissioned from this time showed that most the third as an adult king, even though he was a toddler, <laughs> with Hatshepsut as queen standing demurely behind her. <laughs> However, she... Wait, wait. Who, who made this painting? Well, it's monuments that she had commissioned. Oh, even better. <laughs> However, slowly during her regency, she began taking a more powerful role in the monuments and slowly more and more was in the front line. <laughs> By the seventh year, she was... She's just, like, creeping up in each statue. Yeah. By the seventh year, she was in the front, portrayed as a full king, wielding, like, a flail and crook with the bale muscular chest and the false beard, like, all the things that, you know, have, like, fair, like, the pharaonic statues always have. Yeah, there's just seven-year-old in the background, if they're at all. Yeah. <laughs> the early 20th century assholes who called themselves Egyptologists um, considered her rise to power as naked ambition. However, more recent scholars think there may have been a challenger who tried to take the throne from her from another branch of the royal family, and that actually forced her to step in and take the title of pharaoh in order to save it for her bloodline. Sure. Catherine Roger, the curator of Egyptian art at the Met in 2009, believed that she may have stepped in as pharaoh simply to save the title for her stepson and and avoid a coup. All right, then we're going with the selfless angle. Yeah, I like it better. Okay. (laughs) Well, this theory is actually really supported by her treatment of Thutmose III because during her reign, he was never under house arrest. No one tried to kill him. He was trained as a soldier and as a politician. Like, he was given the full education that was meant for the pharaoh. Okay, so no child death. No child death. Not even, like, attempted child death. He was treated very well. All right, good. Yeah. But pharaoh isn't a job you can quit. Because once you take on the attributes, like once you put on the false beard and like the flail and crook, mm-hmm. you become a god in Egyptian eyes. Absolutely. Yeah. And so once you become a pharaoh, you're like pharaoh till you die because now you're like the mouthpiece of god. Yes. So once she had to take on the title of pharaoh in order to like stop this coup, she couldn't like just be like, oh, my nephew's stepson is old enough. Like, I'm done. Okay. <laughs> so. She definitely knew that her position was tenuous, and that's why she reinvented herself to try and rebrand and change her image with the masculine male depictions. This is kind of where we get the theory that it wasn't necessarily, like, that she was trans or cross-dressing or something like that, because all of her statues still had female pronouns. She was referred to as the daughter of Ray, the sun god. A couple of statues have the title His Majesty Herself, which <laughs> is a whole grammatical thing. <laughs> And she took on the pharaonic name Matkara, which translates to truth is the soul of the sun god. I love it. Yeah. Mat is the ancient Egyptian word for order and justice as set up by the gods. And it was believed that maintaining Mat was the job of a pharaoh and had to be done by a legitimate pharaoh who could speak directly with the gods. So by taking on the name Matkara, she was likely meant to reassure her people that she was actually a legitimate ruler. Right. And had the ear of the gods like pharaohs were supposed to. Yeah, I get it. It's like that one king that was a woman who's like, I am now king. Yeah. Yeah. No. We'll do her later. Yeah, we will. Yeah, she took on the title of king. Like, mm-hmm. pharaoh is their term for king. Didn't, like, give up her female attributes in order to, like, make this work. 
And it was believed that one way to maintain Mott was through building monuments, and she was great at that. <laughs> she built a lot of monuments. So many. She, they were some of the most ambitious in all of ancient Egypt. Her first project was 200-foot-tall obelisks at the Great Temple Complex in Karnak. Each weighed about 450 tons. Wow. Yeah. I read somewhere that took, like, 25 boats to tow all of the stone for it and 800 slaves to row the oars. That's a lot. Yeah. She also built a network of roads and sanctuaries in Thebes, which was the capital of the Thutmose dynasty. Good. Yeah, so infrastructure. public works. <laughs> and right across the Nile from Thebes in Deir el-Bari, she erected her magnus opus, which is her big tomb that I've talked about a little bit, which was believed to be able to grant her perpetual life in the afterlife. Nice. Yeah. The temple's about two football fields long. What? Yeah. It was one of the great architectural wonders of the ancient world. A sphinx guarded the entrance, and there were over a hundred giant statues of her inside. Amazing. Right? I want a tomb with a hundred giant statues of myself. I mean, who doesn't? (laughs) There was also a giant relief in her tomb, which document what she considered her greatest accomplishment of her reign, which was the opening of trade with Punt, a nation that was on the Red Sea, believed to be where about modern-day Eretria is which more or less expanded the luxury goods coming into Egypt to include things like ivory, porcelain, new wools and fabrics, silk, like all these like fancy things that they weren't naturally recurring in Egypt. Wait, wait, is Punt the place where like all the Egyptians would go to vacation and they would all act as if it was super obvious where the location was, which yes. was lost to history? Yes, that is Punt. <laughs> Her tomb was big enough to hold both her sarcophagus and all her tributes and her father's sarcophagus and all his tributes. Just like a lot of stuff. They like bury a lot of stuff with you in Egypt. Yeah, it's a whole thing with them. It's a whole thing with them. And she died in about 1458 BCE, which would have put her in her 40s, which like is kind of old for that time period. Yeah. She had like, she lived out of her childhood, which was a big deal at the time, and... You know, every pharaoh around her died in their 20s, so... Good point. I think it's all the incest. Yeah. We believe she died in 1458 BC, because that's the year Thutmose III first used the title of ruler of Mutt, which means that was the year that he took over the pharaoh. Yeah. And early Egyptologists believed that Thutmose III destroyed her tomb out of spite or revenge, but later archaeological evidence shows that he did not actually destroy her tomb until nearly 20 years into his reign, which means that the likelihood of it being, like, revenge is very low if you waited 20 years. Yeah. People actually nowadays believe that it was actually to try and remove her from the history because it looks really bad for the Thimosid dynasty for there to have been a, like, gap between male rulers. Ugh. So it's believed that he didn't necessarily hate her, he just didn't want to. So it wasn't personal vendetta, it was sexism. Yeah. Also, the method with which he destroyed it was, like, very... Destroyed her tomb and statues and whatnot was, like, very calculated. It wasn't Uh, a passion thing. No, utter destruction. It wasn't utter destruction. It was meticulously decapitating the animal guardians. Yeah, Which is weird. 
so pretty much he was just trying to erase Hatshepsut from the national zeitgeist and change the course of history to make it look like the throne passed directly from Thutmose II to Thutmose III. More or less, he was trying to erase her reign to make sure that, like, later royal females didn't get big ideas about the line of succession. There we go. Yeah. (laughs) And also, there was some fear for the legitimacy of his son, Amitab II's claim to the throne, and so he was trying to, like, get rid of that. Ugh. Nefer deserves to be on the throne. (laughs) Yeah, we don't know much about her. (laughs) But yeah, modern Egyptologists think that the destruction was not a personal vendetta. So, just him trying to purify the Thutmose line. Ugh. Which, like, is better, I guess. Like, a little bit? Yeah. But his effort was very successful. Historians pretty much knew nothing about her but the name Hatshepsut until 1822, when the first hieroglyphic walls of her tomb were uncoded, finally. So... That was exciting. That's when they were like, ah, history, let's go. And they started uncovering stuff about her. And now we've got like a good look at her life, but her story will probably never be complete because of like how much stuff was destroyed right Man. after her death. Joyce Titlesley, who wrote the 1996 book Hatshepsut, the Female Pharaoh, said that her story is like an iceberg. On the surface, we know a lot about her, but there's so much we don't know. Titlesley also has a theory that Hatshepsut knew this would happen to her story and that she'd be forgotten and misunderstood. And this theory is because near the end of her reign, she had a second set of obelisks commissioned in Karnak that had the inscription that read, Now my heart turns this way and that, as I think what the people will say, those who shall see my monuments in years to come, and who shall speak of what I have done. We should have had some secret obelisks. National treasure. Yeah. Let's go. <laughs> That's some Ozymandias energy, though. Yeah. So her mummy wasn't discovered until 2007 because, like I said, it wasn't in her tomb when they unearthed it. And with each new discovery, the story of Hatshepsut continues to unravel a little bit more. Okay, and we definitely still have that mummy, and they didn't eat it. Yes, it was discovered in 2007. I'm just making sure, man. Well, <laughs> you want to know how they figured out the mummy was her? How? With a tooth. Huh. I will explain. Oh, yes, please do. (laughs) So, her mummy had been missing from the tomb when it had been discovered way back in, like, the early 1900s. And it had been a huge mystery for centuries. Everyone was like, where could it have been? Mm -hmm. Because there had been two sarcophagi in her tomb, one for her and one for her father, but both had been empty. Because grave robbing. Um, God damn it. Yeah, and so... But way back in 1903, a tomb had been discovered, but it was like a lesser tomb. It wasn't a pharaonic tomb, and it had been labeled KB60. That was just like the archaeology code to identify it. And it contained two female mummies, one who was very quickly identified by an inscription on her sarcophagus that said Citroen, who was known to have been Hatshepsut's wet nurse, and one that was unidentified. At least she was with her friend. (laughs) So, according to Egyptologist and the foremost archaeologist in all of Egypt, Zahi Hawass, this discovery is the most important discovery in the Valley of Kings since the discovery of King Tut himself. Good, because King Tut's honestly kind of lame. <laughs> yeah, I agree. He, but his mummy, his tomb was so well preserved. Because no one cared about it. But it was so well preserved. <laughs> <laughs> 
Every time the exhibit comes to town, I always want to see it. <laughs> you know, like twice. <laughs> it's really good. Okay, I'll keep an eye out. I have little King Tut earrings. Oh my god, of course you do. <laughs> Dahi Hawas was kind of determined to find Hatshepsut's mummy. It was like a life goal of his. And so he went on a mission. And he took the unnamed, unidentified female mummy from KV-60 to get a CT scan in the 80s, or 90s, sorry, and to figure out what they could figure out about her. And so it was figured out that the second mummy was a woman between 45 and 60 who was obese and suffered from cancer in her pelvic region and spine. Huh. Which, like, is unfortunate. Yeah. The articles I read about this refer to her as the fat woman, and I did not like that, so I'm not going to do that. No, it's so rude. So rude. <laughs> So we're just going to refer to her as the mummy, because I like that better. But yes, the, that's the CT scan. It yep. is impressive that she made it to like 40 something. Yeah. And was able to eat well enough. To- right? Thank you. I mean, this woman was between 45 and 60 in 14 something or another BCE, like... Give her a break. Yeah, of course she wasn't in as good a shape as, like, King Tut. He was 20 and useless. Also, she had pelvic cancer. Yeah! What was she gonna do? Go for a run? Dying of cancer before, like, doctors were a thing sounds awful. Yeah, they didn't know what was happening. No. They just said it was the gods. Probably. Probably said it was, like, her punishment for usurping power or something. They would, wouldn't they? I have no evidence for that. I just made it up. But... Oh, well, it sounds true. Yeah, we're going to take it. A CT scan was also used on a small wooden box that bore the seal of Hatshepsut and was found to contain a liver. This <sighs> is very common for the time because during Egyptian burials, when they were mummifying bodies, they would remove all the organs and preserve them in jars and boxes. Yeah, so they yeah. then get buried with them. So, like, we're not too creeped out by the fact there was a liver in a box. No, no, that's a thing. But also in the box when they see when they put it through a CT scan was a tooth. Okay. So we were they were pretty sure this tooth belonged to the Chepsit, and so it was found with a liver in a box with her seal. That makes sense. Yes. And so they called in a dentist from Cairo University to examine the tooth and <laughs> compare it to a few different unidentified female mummies they had at the time. I love it. <laughs> so like imagine being that dentist getting that call. Like, hey, you want to do some ancient dentistry? <laughs> Pin the tooth in the mummy? I mean, that's pretty much what they did. Because they found that the unidentified female money, mummy from KV-60 had a missing tooth, and that the hole left behind by the missing tooth perfectly matched the tooth found in the box. Like, the tooth fit within a fraction of a millimeter. That's awesome. Right? And they think that, like, little bit of give is probably just, like decomposition the fact that it's been like a few thousand years at this point yeah that's just how bodies work yeah and so they positively identified the unidentified mummy from kv60 as her chef said herself awesome and nowadays if you'd like to see said mummy it's in the egyptian museum in cairo which i love because that means it wasn't like taken by the british empire or something good or eaten (laughs) (laughs) and yeah and there is one full-size statue of the pharaoh that was completely unscathed by her stepson's destruction. And that is currently on display at the Met in New York. Ooh. And then there's a lot of, like, half-destroyed statues of her at, like, every ancient history museum out there. Like, 
go to a art museum, they probably got like slightly broken bust of Hatshepsut somewhere. Yeah, that makes sense. Because there were a hundred statues of her. And just so we're clear, they can't do like DNA evidence on bodies that are that old. I don't think there's DNA left on a mummy because it's like so dried out. Unless like maybe the hair. They got bone marrow, don't they? No, not at that point. It's gone. Okay, bye, bone marrow. Mummies are literally just, like, paper-thin skin and bone, and, like, <laughs> bone marrow decomposes much faster than bone, so... All right. Well, fascinating. Yeah. I was strangely into how mummies work for, like, a short bit, so I actually know a decent amount of the mummification process. You know what? You would be. That would be something that your childhood self was very into. I had a book. Oh, okay. Ancient history's fun. <laughs> I know. It's okay. Egyptology is really interesting. <laughs> You're not wrong. Yeah. Yes, I'd be a historian if I wasn't like an engineer. <laughs> Good job. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad that you got to learn about all this. Yeah. <laughs> like I knew the story of Hatshepsut from when I was younger, but like a lot of the more recent theories I hadn't been like keeping up with, and there like some fun stuffs happened in the last few years with her. Oh, it's really good to hear that they've like actually critically examined history as opposed to just taking the sexist gentleman scholar's word for it. Yeah, no, I mean, because, like, the books I read when I was, like, 10 and really into this stuff definitely still had, like, the gentleman scholar's perspective on it all, and it painted the typical picture of, like, the power-hungry, crazy... Evil stepmother. Yeah, Yeah. evil stepmother. And I really enjoyed this version a lot more. Mm -hmm. Like, I kind of wish this version had been around when I was younger. Well, hopefully... That's changing, and they're going to write some new books. Yeah, my daughters will have perception <laughs> books that have the better story. and We will on- have a new generation <laughs> of Egyptologist children. Yes. <laughs> oh, did you, do you remember that book from when we were kids? The, like, big gold one with the beetle on the cover? That, like, the Egyptology book for kids with the pretty pictures? I think so. Ah, uh, I loved that book. I didn't have a copy of it, but I would look at the one at the library, like, all the time. (laughs) I wanted one, but I never got one for some reason. I'm sorry. But I really, I really, really liked it. Probably my mom thought I'd already read it, so I didn't need my own copy, but I like writing in my books a lot. Uh, Annotations. Not my thing. Uh, I annotate books. (laughs) I think it's fun. Okay. (laughs) Okay, that's that's all I had on Hatshepsut. She was just she was cool. Well, that was great. Yeah, I learned so much. I'm glad I learned a lot too. I thought I already knew this story because of like my interest as a child, but I learned so much actually. Yeah, no, there's always like so much more when we start investigating these people. Yeah, like I knew Marilyn Monroe had a tragic life. Didn't know how tragic. But this one's a little more, a little more cheery, I guess. Yeah, this one I thought was gonna be like story of a power hungry woman, which like we're here for power hungry women on this podcast. But instead, it was like a nice story. Yeah, she was trying to do right by her family. Yeah, she was cool. Ten out of ten would recommend. Yes. All right, Sam. So now that we're done with that, <laughs> have you ever worried about? accidentally ending up in a cult no but i have worried about you accidentally ending up in a cult sam i wouldn't accidentally end up in a cult i would start a cult okay get it right saying that but you're moving into a cult it's not a cult people it's a housing cooperative ellen is moving into a house where she gets a 
room to herself, but, like, shares bathroom and kitchen with a, like, house full of people. And they share their groceries, and they, like, share meals. And that's called living sustainably. (laughs) And it's, like, a Jewish thing, which makes it feel even cultier to me. And she was hiding from me that it was a Jewish thing, which makes me know I wasn't hiding! (laughs) You didn't tell me. (laughs) Alright, so we're gonna go over some cult stuff. Just, just to get that out of the way. So that I know what to look for for when you move into this housing cooperative. I used air quotes. Sure, sure. If that's how you want to interpret this lesson. <laughs> also, I don't necessarily think this is a cult, but I really enjoy telling Ellen that because <laughs> she reacts hilariously. So if anyone ever wants to make Ellen squirm, just like text her that she's in a cult. <laughs> Please don't do that. <laughs> do it. Sorry, don't Instagram DM it to us, because then I'll be the one who reads it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you have to find a way to contact me in order to make me uncomfortable. Anyway, so, first off, we're going to go for some of the warning signs that something's a cult and not just a religious community. And this is by some group called the International House of Prayer, also known as IHOP, which is not the restaurant. <laughs> I checked. Oh, really? It's not the International House of Pancakes? <laughs> the pancakes and the anti-cult group are two different things. Which one came first? I don't know, but... Can you tell me? Arguably, pancakes are a cult. I mean, sure, but I just, I need to know which IHOP came first. Okay. Well, this apparently began 20 years ago. Okay, so International House of Pancakes is older? Yeah, because I'm assuming IHOP is older than 20 years. Yeah. IHOP was founded in 1958. If International House of Prayer is only 20 years old, then they knew what they were doing. (laughs) Free publicity! Because, like, if International House of Pancakes came second, I can excuse that. They probably never heard of an anti-cult group. The anti-cult group has definitely heard of IHOP. Okay, so maybe they were just trying to get people in the door. You're like, you want to come to IHOP? And you're like, sure. And then you get there, and it's a religious group. You know what? That sounds very culty. <laughs> it does. <laughs> All right. So, here are some nice differences between a religious community and a cult. Now, cults oppose critical thinking. They don't like it. Okay. Yeah. They like to isolate members and penalize them for leaving, which, you know, makes sense. They've got special doctrines that aren't really backed up by any actual religious text. Because, you know, they're creepy. They have inappropriate loyalty to their leaders. So just just imagine exactly what you're already imagining. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I told you about how my ex-boyfriend was in a cult, right? Yeah, yeah, you did. So this group, this church that he was part of was, like, named on the cult watch list in the 80s. But, like, everything was on the cult watch list in the 80s. And they... We're, like, very upfront about it. They were like, we know we're on the cult watch list, but we're just a church. Like, everyone was on the list in the 80s. <laughs> and, like, I accepted that wholeheartedly and just was like, ah, oh, he's part of a weird church, whatever. And then, like... You believed that? I was eight, 17, 18. That's how they get you! Well, clearly, I was very susceptible to cults at the time. <laughs> My whole family let me go through with it. Yeah, that's on them. They isolated you from your family unit? I mean, <laughs> no, nah, not really. I went, like, they just invited me to a lot of stuff at the church. They were like, oh, yes, 
you are dating one of our members, you must come to, like, all this stuff at the church, like, Easter eggs, and I went to a wedding for someone I'd never met, and, Okay, like... I'm gonna get through this list real quick, and then we're gonna go to how they get members into a cult. Okay. <laughs> so, they... I would just like to say that this cult's been disbanded. Since. Good, good. It turns out the pastor was doing some not okay things with young women, and they are no longer a church. Ah, inappropriate loyalty to their leaders. (laughs) You can do this all day. (laughs) This says crossing biblical boundaries of behavior. So, you know, just being creepy, basically. Mm. Yeah, doing things that would make you uncomfortable, like saying, all right, all your property belongs to the church now, and Ah. we're going to control your body as well. You know, this guy did live in a house owned by the church. God damn it. And then... (laughs) Uh, and then at some point they're just no, they're just not even part of any church, and they're just their own thing, and they're pretty much officially a cult. Now, here are the steps to, if here's the steps a cult takes to get themselves more cult members. So, first off, you identify your potential recruit. Now, a lot of the times these are troubled young people because they're alone. They're sad, and they're independent, so you can get them. Now, there's also people who are in really stressful situations because, you know, they don't know. They need someone to lean on. So then you invite them to a low-commitment event. You know, like an Easter egg hunt or a wedding. (laughs) (laughs) Something that's very low-commitment, very easy to say yes to. And you want to get them in the habit of saying yes to these events, like small yeses, until you can get to them to big yeses. Now, step three, love bombing. That's where you're creepy. Basically, ah, that's what mildly abusive men do to get you into relationships. Exactly. And what is a mildly abusive relationship if not a cult? Ah, true words. <laughs> now, what this is is basically... They tell you, you're so great, you're so amazing, you're perfect, you made such a good decision coming to hang out with these people, and you're so smart, and they want you to stay with them forever. And... Was I being recruited into a cult? Yes! Because <laughs> <laughs> you went to college. Good! <laughs> We're basically, they're just trying to make you feel that they really love you, and that you're respected. And this is part of their advertisement, which is like step four, where basically you're only shown the good parts at first. So the happy, smiling families, the successful people, and then things get weird. Ugh. So step five, tough, tough love. So this is where they start to tighten their grip. That's terrifying. Yeah, so slowly there's reduced autonomy. You become more dependent on this on the group. There's stricter rules. If it's one of those really sketchy cults, there may be like some kind of brainwashing. Like Nexium? More just like deprived of sleep and food until oh, you're more susceptible to do whatever you're told. Don't like that. No, no one does. And meanwhile, at the same time, there's uh, these increasing rewards. Like, you know, if they're, if they're depriving you of rest and food, rest and food. 
for doing what you're told. <laughs> oh, that's creepy. <laughs> exactly. But basically, they're slowly making it harder for you to back out. Okay. Because you're in this group, they're already making choices for you, and you you may seem like you're free to make your own choices, but really, they're making the big decisions. Now, step six, you want them to stop talking to their friends and family, okay? Because if they're talking to their friends and family, those guys might not might stop your new recruit from joining your cult. They're like, mm. hey, that seems like a cult. I don't like that. Of course you don't. <laughs> so if you move into this cult house and stop talking to me, that's when I can come and make you move? Absolutely, yeah. If I move, if, when I move into my co-op, I break off contact with my friends and family, you can do your cross-country anti-cult road trip. You've already been planning. I have been planning it. Josh isn't planning it. <laughs> I told Josh he's probably not invited, but he's been planning it. <laughs> you know, it's not going to matter because I will keep in contact with you guys. Yeah, we have a year of podcasting that we've already signed up for. <laughs> it's better. Exactly. So, after that, we get to step seven, where things get even weirder. Possible? Yeah. So, instead of, like, just being creepy with your choices and decisions, then they tell you the real juicy stuff of what this cult allegedly believes in. Ah, so, like, the levels of Scientology. Exactly, like the levels of Scientology. Cool. I get it. Yeah. And then... Finally, we get to step eight, which is just zero tolerance of criticism, which basically means if you ask questions, shame them. If you if anyone leaves, they're shunned. We don't talk about them anymore. So basically just absolute obedience. You want them to feel like if they did leave, they would be completely alone and cast out because, you know, you've created an isolation and dependence on your group. Like, what are they going to do? Go back to their family? They already yelled at them. You know, one time I was at a book fair with my mom, and there was a Scientology table that was, like, selling the Scientology books. And I, like, made friends with the guy, because I was a really friendly child. I made friends with everyone. And he was showing me all these books. And, my, like, the Scientology books are, like, about aliens and, like, stuff like that, because that's what they believe in. And it sounded really yeah, fun to me, because I was, like, 11. So I asked my mom if I could get the books. And my mom was like, not sure if she wanted to buy an 11 year old bunch of Scientology books, but ended up buying me what they considered the fiction books because they had fiction and nonfiction of okay. from the author of the Scientology books, which you know, who knows? How were you not indoctrinated into a cult? <laughs> well, yeah, so my mom got me these books because I asked her nicely, and she like really she. She, when I went to a book fair with my mom, she like was very good about like getting me a lot of books because I read a lot as a child. And <laughs> your mom got you this and not the gold scarab Egyptology book. Well, I already read that one at the library, which I, I, I'll admit is like fair. Um, so, yeah, I had these Scientology books. I took them home and like started reading them and they got weird. So I never actually finished them. So I've been, like, almost knocked in a couple cults now, haven't I? God damn it, Sam. <laughs> and you keep making jokes about me. You know what, though? I keep not going through with it because I don't even realize it's happening. <laughs> you keep not going through with it until it's too late. I mean, 
I really like my friends and family, so I feel like if anyone told me to stop talking to them, I'd be like, nah, see you later. There you go. Strong. <laughs> strong energy. I have a lot of strong energy. I'm a Sagittarius. Oh god, not this again. <laughs> well, I'm an Aries, which means I'm headstrong, which means it would be difficult to be to get into a cult. Easy for you to start one. Exactly. <laughs> Alright, well, that's pretty much the basics. You know, there's a couple more details, but that's that's a good overview of cults and how to avoid them. Cool. Good story, fam. <laughs> yeah. So what did you learn today? <laughs> I learned about Hefetzit and how to say her name. Which you did wrong again. You <laughs> <Getting> it canceled. <laughs> I also learned that she was a strong, independent woman who did not approve of child murder. And was just trying to do right by her bloodline, okay? And she also made some really cool monuments. She did make some cool monuments. Yeah. What did you learn today, Sam? I learned about the warning signs of a cult, um, that I've almost been in a couple. (laughs) (laughs) And that you're gonna be in one. (laughs) I didn't mean- this wasn't supposed to become so personal. (laughs) When I chose this topic. But it's cults. Cults are personal. I meant personal to you. (laughs) We've made a lot of jokes about my housing co-op, but... (laughs) Alright. Yeah, you were very surprised when my mom just, like, casually mentioned the other day that my boyfriend was in a cult. Everyone should be surprised by that. I don't know, I live in Los Angeles. I'm surprised by so many aspects of your childhood. (laughs) You know what? The Mormon church is walking distance from my house. The Church of Scientology is, like, a five-minute drive away. This cult church was, like, 20 minutes away. Like, it's fine. Well, Los Angeles is full of young 20-somethings who have just left their parents. Yeah, it is. And it was, like, the center of all that cult stuff in the 80s. Yeah, young, troubled individuals. Alone. Isolated. Not making a lot of money because everyone's a struggling actor. Exactly. So yeah, if you want to start a cult, apparently the place to do it is Los Angeles, California. Actually, I watched a video about it, and the new best place is Las Vegas. That makes sense. I yeah. see that. Yeah, the times are changing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go LA. We're no longer the top place for culting. <laughs> Win. <laughs> Take that, Las Vegas. <laughs> so yeah, if I do start a cult, Las Vegas would be my plan. You know how gross Las Vegas is? Yeah, a cult would fit right in. It's hot. Well? You think it's hot here? (laughs) Try going inland another few hours. You know what? I think I'll do a trial run in Madison, Wisconsin. Okay. (laughs) Alright. What's our show, fam? Yeah, I think that about covers it. If you want to follow us, you can find us on most of the places you find podcasts. Our Instagram is at chaospodcast. If you want to send us an email, the email is chaospodcast21 at gmail.com. And you can now find us on Twitter at underscore chaospodcast. We hope you enjoyed the chaos. Safe travels. <laughs> <laughs>